Welcome. The last session on the last full day of reInvent before replay. So we're going to, yeah, <laughs> keeping you guys from dinner and from uh, replay. So we'll get through this today. And appreciate you all being here. It's a, it's a long week, and there's a lot to go, a lot of content. So the fact that you made time to be here today, we really appreciate it and want to make it worth your while. So I'm Rick Sostheim. I'm a principal engineer on the Amazon EKS team. I'm joined today by Ishwar Bala who is the Senior Software Development Manager for EKS and really has been with the project since its very beginning, um, since the inception. Also today is Ahmed Elbaz, and he's with Snap, and he's going to be showing some of the cool things that they're doing uh, with EKS. So with that, let's get going. Um, we'll go through a little bit of the architectural overview, talk about what's under the hood of EKS, talk about how we do operations for EKS, and then some of the enhancements that are new to um, EKS this year, and then we'll have a, a look at what Snap's doing with their service mesh. So architectural overview, very simple picture to get things going started. So uh, EKS is a, it's a regional service. We have a regionalized endpoint. Uh, customers connect to the endpoint manage everything through this big, large orange box, which represents our opaque EKS. And when we create an EKS cluster, we create 100% open source, upstream, I'm sorry, upstream, open source compliant Kubernetes cluster. So it's an API server that you're used to if you've ever worked with any version of Kubernetes anywhere. Um, we, we create the cluster. Uh, and in turn, you run applications in that cluster. Those Applications running in the cluster can use AWS services natively. So just a handful shown here. Um, but if we look behind the, the scenes a little bit more, you'll, there are a number of endpoints, actually, and a number of personas. So the EKS service endpoint we just discussed, the API server endpoint. Um, the, typically, we see a lot of platform services teams that companies are operating um, their EKS clusters from. So this may be somebody who's an administrator or a, uh, an automation system, a platform, um, that will build EKS clusters and install some default configuration on them. So they'll work typically through the EKS endpoint and then also work through the API cluster endpoint. Um, then you have developers who are running your business applications, the business logic, that runs inside the cluster. And by and large, we don't see a lot of developers that are dealing with cube uh, control. They typically are using CI CD systems um, or some form of GitOps type automation to deploy their applications into their cluster. And then the, the kind of the grayed out area, the white box, um, that's representative of just your cluster. So your cluster has your business applications running in it, uh, and then you have consumers of those applications. So those are your end users, whether they're, whether they're live users, whether they're other automation systems, whether it's data lakes, pools, whatever, to an, uh, analysis, analytics tools, whatever that might be. So if we drill down into that opaque orange box, um, what we see is that the, the EKS cluster that we build is a very opinionated implementation of Kubernetes, right? A simple Kubernetes cluster could be a a thing running on a single VM, right? There, there's nothing to prevent you from running all of the Kubernetes control plane on one VM running on your laptop if you wanted to. Um, a lot of um, 
Kubernetes developers do just that. And then the, uh, the EKS implementation, we've taken a very structured approach to how we deploy it across multiple availability zones. We want to uh, we want to avoid any single points of failure, any failure domains that would in any way compromise the availability or durability of the, the Kubernetes control plane. So that's in the EKS managed VPC. In the customer managed VPC, you see all of the EC2 instances and these slides uh, predate the launch of Fargate, EKS with Fargate from Tuesday. So that's not actually shown here, but um, the customer managed VPC with instances, those can be um, instances that you manage yourself. They could be instances that are managed through our newly launched managed node groups. Um, and it allows you the ultimate flexibility to pick the instance types that you want to run, the, uh, the AMI that you want to run, um, the pricing plan that you want to run, whether that's spot, whether that's on demand, whether that's reserved instances. Uh, and it allows you the access patterns that are important to you, whether you want to have the ability for people to SSH into your nodes, whether you want to have them isolated in private subnets. It gives you all the, the, the flexibility there, so uh, a lot of options there. But let's drill down into the EKS managed VPC a little bit more. And so what you'll see here is that we have, uh, we've split the, the control plane components into mainly into an etcd cluster and the rest of the control, the rest of the master node components. So things like the, uh, the API server itself, the scheduler, the cube controller manager, um, those all run in a single ASG and that is also spread across a minimum of three availability zones. And then the uh, etcd cluster also, likewise, is split across three AZs. And we do that for our durability guarantee. We wanna make sure that any network partition, any event in any single AZ uh, doesn't take your cluster down to read-only, right? We want it to continue to operate. Um, so everything runs inside a private subnet, uh, and we manage ingress and egress to all of that. We lock it down. Uh, really, I think the, the original EKS launch, the, this is what we built. We built a managed control plane. We built something that we felt was highly durable, was highly scalable and was secure. So we really wanted to focus on, on the important aspects for providing business continuity for the stability of your workloads. Um, the <clears throat> you can see that the, the etcd cluster itself has its own load balancer. Uh, we have NAT gateways and network load balancers for the API servers for and also for egress, um, just basically to manage the network traffic, but also Independently, these ASGs give us the ability to scale up um, and vertically and also to scale uh, horizontally in the API components um, to give us the, the flexibility to, to meet the demands of the control plane. So before we go on, I want to talk a little bit conceptually about how we think about building um, Amazon services, right? This is, this is not just an EKS thing. It's, it's something that's become a very predominant concept within all of Amazon. And that's this notion of a cellular architecture. So there are lots of different failure domains. Um, the, the cell, as we think of it, is a single AWS account. And generally, we think about running one complete instance of one software component as a cell. The, the advantage of it is it gives us a very well-defined 
uh, failure domain. Uh, we can test a cell to failure. We can run it up and, until it, it you know, exceeds capacities or exceed limits. And so we get very predictable failure modes. We know how they fail. We know what the behavior is at failure. And we also know how to scale it. We know what the, what the dimensions are for the scaling requirements. Um, so we know when to add more, more cells and scale out horizontally. So um, the, the cellular architecture pattern is something that's baked into everything we do at every layer of our software. Um, so bouncing back up here, uh, I've added the, the AWS CLI and the SDK for accessing your Kubernetes, inter your EKS interface, or the console if that's your preference. But now let's drill down inside the orange box again. Um, at the top left there, the event stream, I've added that as well, but it's more of a, uh, a different interface, but uh, not directly used by uh, users. But behind the scenes, you can see that there's a, a separation of concerns here that kind of falls down around a microservices pattern. Um, you know, these actual components are aggregates. I've, I've kind of coalesced a number of the things into, um, into a uh, rolled up view of the world. Uh, there'd be too many otherwise. The, the front end, um, it's exactly what you would think of. It's a very lightweight API router. Um, the console server, uh, cluster event management, account event management. And then the things that actually deal with the Kubernetes cluster itself, the Kubernetes control plane for managing the state of the system, operational events from the clusters, and then at the bottom, our managed worker nodes. So I want to focus in on just a couple of these components um, and kind of really drive home the nature of the cellular architecture here. So these are just three of the main components that manage state, the, the mutation of state for an EKS cluster, so your CRUD operations to create, update, and delete your clusters. And you can see that behind the scenes, we use AWS services ourselves. So EKS was built from the beginning on top of a, the other AWS services. The front end is API Gateway uh, with AWS Lambda. Um, you can see that the API Gateway Lambda pattern repeats itself over and over. We use a lot of step functions. And then the, the cluster events, the, that, center, that central tier, um, is also the hard point where we archive, make sure we have uh, permanence for data. Um, but Effectively, these are all the same components that you use. We don't use anything behind the scenes. We use AWS services to build our AWS services. Um, the, and again, this is, this is also a simplified view. Uh, there's a lot more that goes into building each one of these. It's not just four things. But, um, but to, I think it, it, it stresses the point that we're kind of eat our, eating our own dog food, right? We want to learn from the experience that we have in, build, in building on top of AWS and feed that back into the system so that we can improve it, so that we can make a better, a better experience for, for you, builders on top of AWS, and for ourselves as builders on top of AWS. Um, one last thought on this before we move on. Why isn't EKS based on Kubernetes? Right? Why is it based on Lambda and API Gateway and a bunch of other stuff? Well, it's simply a chicken and an egg problem. Um, there wasn't a managed Kubernetes service that we could leverage. That's uh, the inception problem. We needed something to bootstrap. And these are, this is a very durable pattern. It's something that works out extremely well for us. And you know, 
Uh, I think now what we are seeing is that other AWS services, and I won't name any of them here because they haven't said I could, but um, other AWS services are starting to build on top of EKS. And the one I can mention is, uh, in fact, Amazon.com now runs a significant part of um, the front page, the, the pages on top of uh, EKS as well. So, All right, so backing out to our cellular architecture. So when we deploy the service, cell the cellular components of the service into a region, we'll start out with the front end and then we'll scale it. So we wanna make sure that it meets the, the requirements of the, uh, the capacity of the region and, so, and also the durability guarantees. So some of these, especially the front end and the cluster events, which are very lightweight components, doesn't require a large, uh, large amount of scaling initially, uh, but something like management, the operational events might require a, a higher degree of scale. Uh, managing the data plane, similar there. And then the control plane, which is the Kubernetes control plane that we're managing, we have lots and lots and lots of instances that do this. So again, this gives us a, a high degree of flexibility in scaling out to meet the demand of, the, of a global service. And, and this is essentially something that we build in every region where EKS runs. All right, so we have all these scalable, durable components. How do we actually operate on it? So let's just focus again on the control plane. And I'm gonna drop the text out of there so this doesn't get too messy. So we have developers that work on EKS and they have their own infrastructure that they can run. They have dev stacks and they can iterate rapidly. And then they commit something to Git. Um, our Git commits all go through the standard unit testing practices and then they get a code review. And this is really like, once it's peer reviewed and signed off on, this is the last point where humans deal with anything. Everything goes into our deployment pipelines. Our deployment pipelines take over and own the process from there on out. So we target a deployment environment. I'm not showing any separation of the deployment environments here, but we do have beta, we have gamma. Um, there are many stages that everything goes through before it reaches a production deployment. Uh, we use upstream open source Prowl to run a lot of our end-to-end -end and conformance tests. So that's standard Kubernetes testing. Um, but it's also a simplification here. We also have a, uh, another system that we use to run integration tests, and we run canaries constantly. So in reality, I'm showing one test, test system here. There are three that are constantly running continuous testing. So we schedule a test on the, the deployment environment. Once we get a green signal from that, then we'll deploy it to the next target. And you can see we're doing something of a, I've accelerated it here to make it make sense on this slide, but a geometric uh, deployment pattern. So we go from one to two, from two to four. But the idea is that we're going to use this signal from our CI CD, from our CD pipeline to manage this deployment, the, the rollout of this deployment. Um, we have a number of uh, business principles baked into this as well. We wanna make sure that we are never touching two regions at the same time that there's a sufficient amount of bake time in every region or in every cell before we progress to the next. Uh, when we do deploy to multiple cells in a single region, they all have to complete successfully. And then we lather, rinse, repeat, and go on to the next one. Schedule all the tests, everything has to pass. 
right? So we have all these different components, all these different, there it goes, all these different microservices that make up an EKS cluster behind the scenes. And I showed you one deployment pipeline, right? In reality, there are a bunch. Like the last time I counted, there were 50 different pipelines that we use in different capacities. And we've talked here a lot about deploying software into cells, but we use deployment pipelines for everything. We use them for pushing uh, AMIs out, for, for creating containers that we publish to our container registries, when we create accounts, when we do almost any amount of infrastructure work that we do that we can automate goes into a pipeline. And then we just let the pipelines do the work. Um, I, was, I was curious. Um, I looked at one of our typical pipelines, and I didn't want to pick like the most, the, the densest pipeline, so I just went and picked one of them. Um, and over the last quarter, uh, there were 17,000 atomic operations for that one pipeline. So that's, you know, that's, an atomic operation could be anything like copying the bits, running the test, um, validating the results, uh, you know, all, all of these different atomic operations um, that, I'm sorry, that, uh, that make up our testing infrastructure or deployment infrastructure. Um, if you look at that, that's, what is it? That's uh, roughly to five to 6,000 a month. That's over 1,250, maybe up to 1,500 a week. Or like a, if you just even consolidate that down to a business working day, that's 250 to 300 events a day that we're constantly pushing out software. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that it has to be automation. It has to be, there can't be humans involved in the loop. This has to be the robots really running the process. And only when there's an exception signal do we have to involve somebody and triage it and figure out why and then put it back on autopilot. Um, so, you know, I don't know, you know, even the best engineers in the world that I can think of, and we have some amazing engineers on our team, I don't want to ask them, I wouldn't, wouldn't even burden them with asking them to do 250, 300 manual operations a day. It's just crazy. So, so if we go back to the very beginning and look at the, the, the different personas in setting up your EKS cluster, and we talked about the cluster administrator and the developers, like those are the, the human elements where they may be making decision about what RBAC roles, what policy to install, what plugins you want to run, how you want to run it. But once that's encapsulated in some sort of manifest, then it's all automation from there on, right? Once you're developers, once you've decided on a feature set, um, something that you want to deploy into your cluster, it's all automation from then on. Um, so that's, uh, that's a look at how we do this. I'm going to turn it over to Iswar and let him tell you about what we've been up to. Thank you, Rick. So for the second portion of this talk, uh, I want to cover a little bit about what we've been doing in EKS for the past year. Uh, I'll cover, I'll pick a particular feature that's been super popular amongst our users, and uh, I'll cover a little bit about it, and then I'll also touch upon and uh, talk about how we've actually made the EKS Fargate implementation possible. So in the last year alone, EKS has shipped close to 75 features. Uh, and I don't want to talk about, obviously I don't want to talk about 
every, about everything here, right? I do want to touch upon a few notable, notable things. So uh, the first thing is, uh, so we, we improved the observability of the control plane. Uh, so we now enable you to get the control plane logs into your CloudWatch accounts. We also enable you to get the audit logs into your CloudWatch accounts. So if you want to troubleshoot, if you want to look into what's going on in your cluster, that's available to you. Uh, we also made uh, your API server endpoint uh, uh, accessible only to your VPC, the worker nodes, where the worker nodes are running. We call it a private API endpoint feature. So prior to this, if you come and create a cluster in EKS, uh, your cluster, we give you a cluster endpoint, right? Everything is behind that endpoint, completely abstracted away from you. And this is internet facing. And even though it's internet facing, uh, you can actually control the access into this cluster endpoint using IAM roles and policies. Uh, but we've had customers tell us that they'd rather have their, their uh, VPC where the worker nodes are uh, completely cordoned off of internet, right? So, which is what uh, you get by turning off uh, the public endpoint and turning on the private API endpoint for your cluster. Uh, with Kubernetes 1.14, we... Uh, we announced Windows support uh, for production workloads. Uh, in the same EKS cluster, you can now have Linux worker nodes and Windows worker nodes launch applications uh, either in either of these operating systems uh, and leverage that single cluster. We also recently announced managed node groups. It is, like, it is the biggest feature addition we have done to EKS. Uh, until last month, you could, uh, EKS only managed the control plane. Uh, it was your responsibility as a customer to bring your own worker nodes, attach it to the EKS cluster, and take care of uh, provisioning, upgrading, scaling, terminating the uh, worker nodes. With the managed node groups, now we take on that responsibility. You can actually uh, come and tell us that how many nodes you want. We end up creating it behind an ASG, and then we take care of all of the operations for you. Uh, the last thing I do want to touch upon is the AWS node termination handler. We, uh, we recently announced an open source project uh, that lets you uh, bring in spot instances and uh, handle them properly in EKS. So this particular, uh, control, uh, th this particular handler lets you, uh, lets you run spot instances in the cluster and also handle uh, spot termination instances, uh, termination notices more gracefully. So this handler listens for these uh, termination notices and then actually kickstarts the workflow of like coordinating and draining the uh, worker nodes properly. So the most interesting feature for the, in this handler is you can simulate spot termination notices and see how gracefully your applications are, are uh, able to handle that. So we've also, we also now support uh, associating IAM roles to your applications running in the Kubernetes cluster, and this was the most uh, demanded feature from our customers uh, next to managed node groups. And now, with, with this feature, you can now say that I, I want this particular uh, service account to, to leverage this particular IAM role, and uh, we make all of that uh, possible. Uh, and so given that it's at the service account level, uh, this can apply to both pods and at the namespace level. So uh, the credentials that your applications get is, uh, is rotated periodically. Uh, and uh, the service, so the service account, uh, the iron rolls for service account uh, also leverages something called a projected service account token within Kubernetes. So that way we see it gracefully bridge the two worlds, the Kubernetes world uh, and the IAM. Uh, 
Uh, and the projected service account token leverages a key pair, and, these, and this key pair is automatically rotated as well. It's super secure. Uh, so the way the workflow, how you would use this is uh, in your, so, like you would create a service account in Kubernetes, and you would annotate that service account with the IAM role ARN that you want uh, anything running in that service account to, to, to be associated with. You also go to IAM and tell IAM that, uh, that you are okay and you trust this particular service account to, uh, to actually use this IAM role. The second step is super critical because like, you don't want anybody in your cluster to say that, hey, I wanna use this IAM role, and then automatically you get those credentials. Uh, so this is built, uh, so the way we made this possible is we've actually modified AWS SDK to, to, uh, to recognize that your pods are trying to, to get an IAM role and uh, vend these to, to the pods. So, and these are auditable as well. You can go look into CloudTrail and you can see which service account is, uh, is using which IAM role. So a little bit on how this, uh, this works. So you create an EKS cluster, uh, you have a Kubernetes API server, right? And the Kubernetes, like I mentioned, we, uh, we actually leverage something called a projected service account token in Kubernetes. And this particular token, is, it's actually different from a service account token. And this projected service account token can, lets you uh, use this and be validated to a, against a third party uh, provider, credentials provider. And that's exactly what we do here, right? So we have a Kubernetes API server. We also run something, uh, a key server that's actually running alongside your uh, Kubernetes API server. Uh, and the key server vents the private key. It, it hosts a key pair, public and the private key. And the private key, private key is actually provided to the Kubernetes API server. And when the projected service account token is, is created, it is signed using this private key. And EKS hosts an OIDC endpoint uh, that actually vents this public key to STS slash IAM that, uh, that is going to use this public key to verify that uh, the service account token that, that, is, uh, that your application is trying to use uh, can actually get this IAM role. So you launch a Kubernetes pod. Uh, the Kubernetes pod gets, this, uh, gets a projected service account token, which is, which is a JWT. Uh, Kubelet gets the token from Kubernetes API server. API server uses the private key to create the token and sign it and gives it to Kubelet, and Kubelet mounts this token into a volume, which your Kubernetes pod is now able to read. And now when the Kubernetes pod uses AWS SDK to, to access any of the AWS services, AWS SDK sees that, okay, I have a projected service account token at this particular location. I'm gonna use that and ask STS for temporary role credentials. And STS is gonna, sorry. So STS is gonna uh, provide the token to, uh, to, temporary, to, to your application after getting the public, public signing key, making sure that the, the, the signature is actually good. And this way, once the IAM credentials reaches your application, you're free to do uh, whatever the IAM role lets you do. So I talked a little bit about the features that we've shipped, like 70 and odd, but job zero for EKS is security and reliability. Our customers have chosen to run their most critical, mission-critical production workloads on top of us. And EKS is heavily invested in making sure that we meet those expectations that customers are, are placing on top of us for highly secure, operationally reliable service. Uh, Rick talked a lot about the cellular architecture. At our scale, right, so EKS cumulatively has created million clusters. 
And it's, we've also cumulatively have handled millions of upgrades. So at that scale, change management is super critical. Uh, we want to make sure that even the smallest change, even if it could potentially cause an issue, we contain the blast radius. And the way we do it is by using cells like what Rick was talking about. We compartmentalize our regional footprint into multiple deployment units, units, each one of them is a cell, and we make sure that we deploy only to one particular cell at any given point. We deploy it, we run our test there, we make sure it soaks there for a set duration, make sure everything looks good, and then take it on and propagate to the next stage, and so on and so forth. Uh, in our largest region, we have up to like 20 cells. Uh, we've also invested quite heavily in making sure that uh, we, we have a strong validation test suite for, for new Kubernetes community releases. We want to make sure that any new version that we make available in EKS does not cause any, any undue issues whenever you try to upgrade, right? So we've invested heavily in that. So we've seen a number of security-related issues in the past year. And uh, EKS has actually taken these security patches and upgraded our entire fleet uh, without any customer intervention, and for the most part, even before they were publicly disclosed. And uh, if, like, even though we might have shipped all the features that we have shipped, if you ask any EKS engineering team member, you, you would actually hear us say that we are super proud of all the uh, security and the operational to, uh, investments that we have made and the, and the activities we have done. Okay, so we announced EKS for Fargate uh, on Tuesday. It's a big deal. Uh, these are two complicated systems with very natural impedances on how they behave, uh, Fargate and Kubernetes, and we've actually uh, tried to fuse them in a way that actually works really well. So I want to quickly position Fargate here. So Fargate is, is uh, AWS Fargate is, is what we see this as a serverless container compute fabric. Now you might ask, why do you need a separate compute fabric? You have an EC2, and why do you need a separate uh, serverless container compute fabric. The reason is containers are, are vastly different from, from, the, from the regular applications you run on EC2 instances. Number one, they are, their compute resources are so granular, right? Yeah, normally, you, you would launch an EC2 instances, you run mul multiple containers packed together, right? But, but, uh, but in this case, like if you want to provide an isolation model that is per, per container specific, you have to be a lot more granular. Containers are very ephemeral in nature. The mutation rates are super high, right? So these are the reasons we've actually purpose-built a compute fabric that serves containers really, really well. Uh, so, so, so now that we have Fargate, right, so f the way you use Fargate is by, by using an orchestrator API, right, on top of it, right? So the way we, we think of Fargate in AWS is Fargate is in, this, in the layer cake, it's actually in the same layer as EC2. Even though you might talk to EC2 regularly, EC2 has a control plane API that you can create instances and all of that stuff, with Fargate, you leverage Fargate by using an orchestrator on top of it. And uh, you could pick ECS or EKS Kubernetes, for example, right? So at AWS, we are, we are not dogmatic about this is the right API for orchestration. We, we want to make sure that we provide the choice for you, and you make a choice on whichever orchestration API fits you, fits you well. So, so now with EKS Fargate, you have, uh, you have a way to leverage Kubernetes APIs, and we make sure that whenever you create pods, we end up using the Fargate compute fabric, if you choose to use that, and uh, launch all the pods, replica sets, deployments onto Fargate. So one of the core tenets we had with Far when, we, when, we, when we did the EKS Fargate was, uh, was making sure that as customers, 
you don't have to modify your pod spec to be able to use in the Fargate world. Uh, you, you, you bring your pods, replica sets, deployments onto Fargate. You provide a, provide a knob for us to say this, this actually can be launched in Fargate, and, and we, we take it and run it there. Uh, it's, it's production ready from day one, which translates into uh, you can have high availability, right? So you can actually tell us which subnets you want our pods to be launched, and we make sure that the pods, a group of pods you end up launching gets uh, launched in, uh, in, a, in a highly available fashion. And each pod runs in its own isolated VM environment, super secure model. Uh, and the, one of the things we do is we also make sure that there is a logical node, right? So you can't get away with node in Kubernetes. Kubernetes places node front and center. Node is a failure domain, placement domain. We've made sure that there is a logical node that checks into your cluster, and you can actually do kubectl get nodes and you see the logical node. Uh, but this logical node is, is perfectly right-sized for your, for your pod. Uh, and uh, we also made sure that the AWS integrations work really well. We, we place these pods into your uh, subnet uh, by means of creating an ENI from your account and attaching it to your pod. And that way, any other workloads that you're actually running in your VPC is available to your pod. So this is how now the EKS cluster architecture looks. Like Rick, Rick uh, talked about it, right? So he, he had uh, two boxes down, now you have three. So at, at the top is the EKS control plane. Uh, this is your control plane. You come and create a cluster. This Kubernetes control plane is specifically created for you, single-tenanted. There are real EC2 instances. There are real NLBs, internet gateways, NAT gateways, in its own VPC, just yours. And to this control plane, prior to Fargate, you had two modes. Uh, so both of them leverage the EC2 compute fabric. So one is bring your own worker nodes. Uh, if you feel, if you want complete control, you come and attach it to your EKS cluster and launch your workloads over there. With the managed nodes, you got the second option uh, in the middle there where we launch the worker nodes in your account and you're able to, and st these are still EC2, and you're able to launch your workloads over there. And uh, now with Fargate, you have the third option there, right? So the logical nodes sit in Fargate VPC, so you really cannot log into these nodes, for example. So the things we, so once we attach this logical node into your cluster automatically, you create your pod, we attach this logical node, and we take, take care of scheduling this particular pod into the logical node, and off you go. So we, from the beginning, we wanted to make sure that you're able to use the compute, the data plane, uh, whichever way you feel like, right? So the compute layer should be fluid. And now that you have three ways mainly two, two fabrics, EC2 and, and Fargate. Now that you have two fabrics to target against where you want to run your compute, uh, how do you actually tell us, how do you pick where pods go to? And, that, and that's actually done by, by a new API object called Fargate Profile. So in EKS, we have some CRUD operations on Fargate Profile. And uh, so if you look at that, the first, so the main thing here is the selection criteria, right? This is how exactly you're defining, you're telling us that these are the pods that I'd like you to, to launch in Fargate. Yeah. So if you look at it, so it's, it's by namespace. You can actually leverage namespace, and then any pods in that namespace end up in Fargate. If you want to be super specific, you can say that I want this namespace, and you can use label targeting to make sure that you're, you're very specific, and some pods in a namespace end up in Fargate, and some end up in EC2. So there are subnets there. So this is where you're telling us that I want you to launch the pods in these subnets. 
You can provide one or you can provide multiple. And if you provide multiple, and if you're launching a group of pods like replica set, uh, for example, right, we end up placing each of these pods in, in one of these subnets. And the last one is the pod execution role. So the way to think of pod execution role is this, this is the role that provides EKS the permissions to pull images from your, like if you have container images in your pod that are hosted in ECR, we need permissions to be able to pull that image. And you provide that permissions, those permissions to pod execution role. And we also assign this pod execution role to the Kubernetes component. Yes, there's kubelet running, there's kubeproxy running, and each of these need their own identity to join the cluster, to, to listen for services that are launching, right? So, so we leverage this pod execution role to be able to provide that identity to both kubelet and kubeproxy. So this is a very high level view of how, what happens in the, in the EKS Fargate land. So you as a customer, you tell us, you create a Fargate profile, you run a pod on Fargate. Uh, it could be a deployment, it could be a replica set. So as pods are launched in Fargate, we take an ENI from your, in your VPC, in your account, and we attach it to the, to the pod. That way the pod feels like it lives in your, in your VPC and it has access to all of the other things in your VPC. Uh, note that you don't have any capacity to manage. There's nothing in your VPC in terms of capacity. So I, I do wanna dive a little bit deeper into how the mechanics work well, when you try to launch a pod in Fargate. So there are other backend services that makes, that does some infrastructure management, that does, uh, uh, that, that does manage the Fargate profiles, but I'm not gonna go into those. I wanna keep it, to, for simplicity, simplicity's sake, I wanna keep it to the pod launch path here. So, so you, you, do, you do see your cluster there. So you have multiple API servers, multiple etcd. For simplicity's sake, I, I have just have one of each, uh, one box of each. Uh, so your API server is running. There are two main architectural components that we have added into, that runs alongside your control plane. The first one is a webhook. So, I mean, it, is, it runs as a mutating webhook, but the main reason this component exists is to decide which pod needs to land where, right? So given that we let you attach multiple uh, compute layers, to compute fabric to, to, to your cluster, we, we want a component that decides which goes where. And that's what that webhook does, right? So to the webhook is, uh, the input to the webhook is the Fargate profile. So you, you can have multiple Fargate profiles associated with your cluster. And uh, the, the webhook takes all of these Fargate profiles, treats them as input. And, and the, other, the, uh, the other input to the, to the webhook is the pod spec itself. Whenever a pod is launched, it comes into the webhook, it reaches API server, API server first calls the webhook, uh, Webhook uses the EKS Fargate profile and does three, adds three main directives to the spot spec. If you were to describe a pod when it's launched in the Fargate pod, you'll see three main things added to the pod spec that didn't exist when you created. And the first one is, uh, is which profile that, uh, that is gonna be used that, that matched your pod spec, right? So that's actually noted there, and it's mainly there for your uh, visibility. The second thing is it adds, it says that this pod spec needs to be handled by uh, the EKS Fargate scheduler. I'll talk about it a little bit. So that way, the default scheduler doesn't kick in and try to place the pod. The third thing that it adds, the third directive it adds is actually very, very interesting. Uh, we add something called a system node critical priority class to the pod spec. I'll come back to it a little later because I want to talk about the workflow first. 
So the webhook adds all these directives and then gives it back to API server. API server stores in etcd. So now we need a component that actually looks, that needs to take the pod and place it in, into Fargate. Actually launch and make, get it into a running state. And that's the EKS Fargate scheduler. And so the EKS Fargate scheduler is looking for pods that are tagged with the, the Fargate scheduler name. And when it, when it sees those, it knows that it needs to take it and own it and get it into a running state. And the first thing it does is, uh, is do, uh, it does the same Fargate profile validation logic that the webhook did so that it picks the right Fargate profile. And then it goes on to, to acquire the capacity. So now the scheduler talks to the internal Fargate API. It uh, takes the Fargate, uh, it takes the, the compute fabric from Fargate profile, takes it, makes it a logical node, and attaches to the cluster. And once this logical node gets attached to the cluster, it goes on to, to launch the Fargate pod in there. And then the far, pod gets into, into the running state. So now let's uh, trace back to the system node critical thing that I pointed out. So the reason why the webhook adds the system node critical is, remember, this, this scheduler is right-sizing the, the logical node to your pod's requirements. Uh, and number one, we don't want anything else to be placed in that Fargate pod because we purposely right-sized that, that, uh, that particular logical node. And this is a distributed system at the end of the day. And, the, and, the, and these operations are not atomic, right? So they are happening at, at, as different phases. And there are other distributed components in the system, including the Kubernetes scheduler. So we really don't want the Kubernetes scheduler to, to, to use the logical node for anything other than the Fargate pod that was actually uh, going to be placed there, number one. Number two, even when the Fargate pod is running, we don't want anything, including the scheduler, to kick out the Fargate pod to make way for something else to be run on that Fargate node, right? So there are several things you can do in Kubernetes that actually ends up kicking out your, your, your pods and your existing nodes. So by making, by tagging the, the pod spec as system node critical priority class, uh, we tell scheduler not to kick, the, the default scheduler, not to kick the Fargate pod out of the, out of the Fargate logical node. So we looked at the control plane side of things. I want to talk a little bit about what happens on the, on the data plane, on the, on the actual logical node itself. So remember, right, I mentioned the, the actual pod itself is running in the, uh, in the Fargate VPC. So there are EC2 instances. Remember, Fargate also uses firecrackers. I'm not, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to actually pick the EC2 workflow. So we have a server. We've got, the, this is the standard EC2, right? You've got an hypervisor running. There's an EC2 instance there. There's a guest kernel and OS. On top of it runs the Fargate agent. And the Fargate agent is an agent that helps us bootstrap uh, the EKS infra agent, make, make it a logical node, and attach it to the, to the, to the EKS cluster. So we leverage the Fargate agent to actually run our EKS infra agents. And the EKS infra agent is an aggregate uh, agent that actually includes both kubelet and kubeproxy as well. So the Fargate agent ends up bootstrapping the EKS infra agent, kubelet and kubeproxy. Kubelet and kubeproxy joins the cluster, and then the pod starts running. And at that point, it's the usual kubelet workflow. And so the, so there, there are several namespaces here. So there are several isolation boundaries here. So the EKS infra agents, including the kubelet and kubeproxy, are run in a different namespace than your pod itself. Uh, so there's an Fargate agent itself has an ENI that's attached into the VPC, Fargate VPC. 
And remember how I was telling you that when your pod is launched, uh, we pick a, create an ENI from your account, take it and attach it to your pod so that it, belong, it, look, it, it is part of your network and is able to leverage other things in your VPC. And that's what's shown here. So we, we create an ENI from your account, take it and attach it to your, to your, uh, to your container. So even though these, even though the EKS infra agent, including the kubelet and kubeproxy, runs in a different namespace than your uh, pod, we, we do some trickery here, right? So uh, we, if you look at the pod launched in Fargate and the logical node associated with Fargate, you'll see that the IP address of the node, logical node that the Fargate pod is running, and the pod itself, the pod's IP address, are the same. If you look at your Kubernetes cluster, that's not the case here, right? So the reason why we did that is because if you launch a pod, we really do not want to be using two IP addresses per pod, right? So that's pretty inefficient, and IP addresses are, are a scarce full resource, and you, you, don't, you don't want to be overusing them. So to recap, so what do you get from, uh, what, what don't you have to do anymore if you, have to use, if you use Fargate? So there's no worker nodes to manage. These nodes come and go as pods come and go. Uh, you don't have to use pay, pay for unused capacity because they, they're gone when the pods are gone. Uh, you don't have to leverage cluster autoscaler because the pods are uh, created ad hoc and, and they go away ad hoc. So what do you get out of the box is like you get a stronger isolation model. You, like it is a secure VM isolation boundary for the pod. Uh, the billing is at the pod level and you also get a chargeback like you can have uh, tags and labels associated with the pod. So, Things to notice when you when you use stuff in, in far, when you launch pods in Fargate, right? So the main thing to notice: daemon sets will no longer work in, uh, in Fargate land. So the reason being, these are so this is the natural impedance I, I was I was talking to to folks earlier, right? So Kubernetes is, has a concept called node, which is front and center, and in the Fargate land, there's no such thing as a node. Nodes don't exist, right? How do you fuse them together? So so we we could not come up. Uh, in a way that will meet, meet your behavior, right? So daemon sets are not supported for that reason. So for example, remember I mentioned that the, pod, the no, logical nodes are perfectly right-sized for your pod. There's no other place to, to launch a daemon set there, number one. And let's say your pod's running and you launch a, a daemon set, what do we do? Do we kill your pod so that we create uh, more size and then launch daemon sets along with it? That's not a behavior you expect as well. You expect daemon sets to anything launched after the pod launches, not to disrupt your running pod, right? So these are the questions we had to ask, ask ourselves, and we concluded that a, a node-related stuff no longer makes sense in the Fargate land. Daemon sets, node, node affinity, host port, node port don't work in Fargate. Today, the only, load uh, only the ingress supported is ALB. NLB load balancer is not supported, but the support is coming. We are working on supporting Fargate pods in NLB uh, pretty soon. Uh, you cannot run privileged containers. They just don't work in Fargate. Uh, stateful sets using, uh, using volumes do not work. Uh, so so if, you, if you want to try Fargate, please create a new cluster, 114 cluster, and you'll get Fargate support. If you have existing clusters before 114, like 113, 112, uh, please upgrade them, and you'll also be able to, to launch Fargate pods. Uh, today, Fargate's available in four regions. They're over there. Uh, more supports coming in Q1 next year. So, talked about what we shipped, where are we headed, right? So, next year. So, we want to make EKS globally available. So, uh, we're launching in China and GovCloud. We want to make it easy, one-click cluster experience. We want to get it, get it, make it cost-effective, ARM instances and EC2 instances. 
And we, in general, we want to provide, make EKS a building block, right? So where it's easy to create clusters, all you have to worry about is managing your applications and nothing else, which means that control plane, your worker nodes, uh, and also anything that you install on top of the cluster that is not applications, like cluster autoscaler, like, uh, like metric server, all of these are something that we, end up, we want to eventually manage so that you worry about only your applications. So with that, I want to hand over to uh, talk about how Snap is actually leveraging EKS to run their microservices. Snap has been a super, super uh, important partner for EKS. Uh, they, they've, they're large scale, they stress our system uh, really well. And uh, to talk more about it, we have Ahmed Elbas, a software engineer from Snap. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Ahmed Elbaz. I'm a lead software engineer at Snapchat. And today I'm going to talk about how we build on top of EKS to provide a secure, fast, and highly scalable infrastructure for services at Snap. So to give a little bit of background, uh, one of the core objectives at Snap has been to evolve the architecture from a monolith application deployment to a distributed and multi-cloud service-oriented architecture. So this not only increases the velocity of service development and innovation, but it also reduces the overall complexity of the system and the overall blast radius. It allows teams to independently scale, operate, and evolve their services, and it allows us to open the door for extending to new regions and new clouds. So Service Mesh at Snap is an effort which was started to address this specific motivation of breaking the monolith. It provides a layer for abstracting the compute and network infrastructure for all services at Snap, and it provides a set of common core capabilities by default at the platform level that not all services need to re-implement or account for in their logic. So some of those capabilities include security by default, such that not all services need to account for client authentication, rate limiting, load shedding, traffic encryption, or TLS termination. This is all readily available at the platform level, and services just need to plug in their logic. Other capabilities include standardizing traffic management and routing policies. So for example, with service discovery, caller services no longer need to have prior knowledge of what are the specific endpoints of the target service to call. Instead, they actually use a consistent naming scheme for addressing their dependencies, such as call ranking.snap or search.snap. And then they let the platform take care of routing traffic to the optimal endpoint, either in the same zone or the closest region. So services in the mesh leverage consistent controls by default now at the platform level, such as traffic splitting, mirroring, or failing over across endpoints. And they also leverage automatic resilience through bounded retries and built-in failure handling in the system itself through circuit breakers that prevent errors from cascading throughout the system. The mesh also provides default level of observability such that when errors happen, it's now easier to identify if they are related to network failures or they are related to bad changes in one of the services or one of their dependencies. In fact, it's even faster now to scope the blast radius of failures if they are happening at a regional level, zonal level, or even related to one specific instance failing. So here are some of the components or the core technologies that we use for standardizing infrastructure at SNAP. So, we heavily use EKS for compute for all services in the mesh, uh, mainly to manage the application containers as well as the set of common containers that are injected as sidecars alongside each service. Envoy, a highly efficient reverse proxy developed at Lyft, which we use for data plane operations both within the mesh and at the edge, 
mainly for uh, controls like load balancing, uh, traffic routing, observability, and security controls. Switchboard in-house control plane, which is developed at SNAP for managing services, routes, and security policies. And we also use Spinnaker, which is an open source continuous delivery platform, mainly to standardize deployment orchestration and uh, deployment best practices for all services. So here's a very high level overview of service mesh architecture. So on the left side, we see the switchboard service where service owners go to onboard their services to the mesh. Basically, this is how they uh, define the properties of the service, such as whether the service operates at gRPC protocol, HTTP2, HTTP1, what are the dependencies of the service, and whether the service receives traffic from external clients through the SNAP API gateway or from other services in the mesh. So Switchboard then digests all this information and translates it to lower level routing configuration. So as we look towards the right, we see a representation of each mesh region. So in each region, we have a control plane which consumes the generated Envoy configuration from Switchboard and delivers this configuration to all Envoy instances in the mesh and at the edge through bidirectional gRPC streams. So each service in the mesh is actually deployed on top of EKS and it's plugged alongside a set of common containers that provide the set of common core capabilities that I mentioned in the previous slide. So each service is um, bundled with Envoy Sidecar for managing traffic routing and security and observability, uh, metrics and logging and security functionality sidecars. At the edge, the SNAP API gateway is basically a fleet of Envoys deployed at the edge, which enforces a strong security perimeter and isolates the private mesh network from the external traffic. So following the green lines, which represent the data plane calls, we see that data plane calls or external calls are terminated at the edge. And only after they pass security checks for client authentication, rate limiting, and other security policies, they're then allowed to the private network. And then they are routed to the target service based on path or host name match of the incoming calls. This same flow actually applies for service-to-service -service communication. So for example, we see service A only knows about its local Envoy sidecar. This is where it routes all of its outgoing traffic. And this lets us to completely abstract the network topology for all services and let the Envoy sidecar manage the traffic security, encryption, and routing policies. So in the flow here, Envoy would then perform traffic encryption and add security tokens which represent the identity of the caller service and then route traffic to the closest endpoint of the target service. Now, as traffic reaches the target service, it gets intercepted by Envoy sidecar on the other side through IP table rules. And then it performs TLS termination and authorizes the incoming calls before they are then allowed to the local service. So as you can see here, services do not know anything about traffic encryption or routing or how the security tokens are generated or verified. This is all handled by the platform by default. So here are some of the architectural design decisions for implementing the mesh in AWS. So for accounts, we use a single account to host compute and network resources for all services. And data for each service is isolated to a separate account, which is accessible to the service. For compute, we use EKS, mainly with one EKS cluster per service or a group of correlated services. And each EKS cluster is provisioned with a granular IAM role, which is necessary to enforce the access isolation between services. Today, we have about 300 EKS clusters in the mesh, with some clusters as large as 3,000 nodes. For the network, we have one VPC resource per region, with subnets provisioned over a minimum of three availability zones. 
The network provides default level of protection for all services. So as I mentioned earlier, this is done through the security perimeter enforced at the edge, but also, also through centralized management and monitoring of security groups and network ACLs. Today we have over 4 million QPS flowing between services across all the mesh regions. In fact, this touched 6 million QPS last week. So this diagram further illustrates the architecture of AWS uh, architecture in, uh, for service mesh. So basically, um, for the sake of example here, we're showing service A calling service B in the mesh account in US East 1. Data for service B is isolated to a separate account. So for example, S3, DynamoDB, or ECR, those are all in a separate account which are accessible to the caller service through a resource access policy or by assuming a role in the target data account which has access to those resources. For other types of data access, such as Redis or other data types that are provisioned in the mesh account, those have their access protected with security groups. So in the example here, we see only service A is allowed to call the Redis cluster, but other services are blocked by the security group rules. For EKS cluster nodes, we started with a single auto-scaling group which spans multiple availability zones. However, we later changed this architecture to have one auto-scaling group per zone. This allows for better integration with cluster auto-scaler, which is not zone-aware by default. So with this, we're able to see better uniform distribution of nodes across zones as the cluster auto-scaler performs scale-up for the cluster. This also avoids issues related to non-graceful node termination, which Ishwar was uh, touching on. So uh, with the auto-scaling group manages uh, rebalancing of nodes across zones, this rebalancing is done in a non-graceful way, which causes disruption of the running workloads. For service-to-service -service communication, we are increasingly using uh, client load balancing. Basically, we are distributing the load balancing functionality on envoys of caller services, instead of throwing more load balancer resources into the account. This has multiple benefits. On one side, it allows us to further scale the network by passing the limit of load balancer resources per account, especially as we're adding more and more services to the account. And also it provides cost and performance benefits, especially as we maintain traffic within each availability zone and only perform inter-zone egress calls in case of zonal failures or uh, reduced capacity of the deployment in the zone. All right, so as more servers started to onboard to the mesh and consume EKS, it was clear that we need to account for uh, service tooling in order to address the common service requirements and uh, reduce the management overhead for service owners. So one area the tooling covers is uh, EKS cluster provisioning and version upgrades. This mainly ensures that provision clusters are created with granular IAM roles per service, which is necessary to enforce the access isolation, as I mentioned earlier. But also it ensures that granular access controls are in place to ensure that each service team is able to operate on, on their clusters and we uh, block or prevent other unintended access to the cluster. Our tooling also aims to standardize cluster add-ons and configuration across all services. For example, for all service clusters, they would be configured with consistent state of metric server, cluster autoscaler, uh, cube DNS autoscaler, and the CNI network plugin properly configured with custom parameters that are relevant to service mesh. In fact, we ex extend this standardization where we deploy the EKS cluster nodes with custom AMIs, and those AMIs include network fine-tuning and uh, in-house tools that we use for auditing and managing access to the cluster nodes. 
So here's a quick walkthrough which shows how Switchboard integrates with cluster provisioning experience. So here the owner of example service requests the creation of a new EKS cluster and specifies that the target is for AWS and the cluster hosts staging workloads and then provides some parameters related to the node pool size and instance type of the nodes of the cluster. And then after the request is submitted within a few minutes, the cluster will be created with all the standard add-ons in place and the security access controls properly configured. Other area of tooling aims to standardize the service deployment experience for all services in the mesh. So on one side, it aims to abstract how we inject and upgrade the set of common containers that are deployed as sidecar alongside each service. Those are the common containers mentioned earlier for traffic observability, security, metrics, and logging. So basically, we take the service container and then we plug in all the, service, all the other containers alongside with it in as seamless way as possible. The other area of tooling aims to standardize um, the deployment best practices for all services so that it's by default happening for all services without having to repeatedly account for or re-implement. This includes, for example, ensuring uniform distribution of pods across zones and uh, ensuring safe rollouts for each service with integrated health checks uh, and canary rollouts, for example. So in this walkthrough, wow. So in this walkthrough, the owner of example service now goes back to switchboard, and uh, here he creates a um, Spinnaker pipeline to deploy his service into the cluster that we just provisioned. So basically, selects the service to be deployed and the target cluster to host the deployment, and then creates a deployment pipeline which includes stages for canary analysis, zonal rollouts, and health checks. Looking ahead, we're very excited to consume some of the recently announced EKS features that Ishwar mentioned today namely IAM roles for service account. This allows us to configure access isolation between services at the pod level instead of the node level, which is happening today. It's actually a step forward towards, towards multi-tenancy where pods hosted in the same cluster can now have different granular access to different resources. With the managed worker node groups, we have simplified uh, cluster upgrade experience and it addresses several of the issues touched on today related to non-graceful node termination and better integration with, with cluster of scalar. And finally, with the managed EKS cluster add-ons, several components will now be readily managed and available on provision clusters that were otherwise manually managed by each EKS cluster owners. So this concludes my part of the talk today. Thank you for having me today. So we had a lot of breakouts that did deep dives on EKS. So all of these are recorded and available on YouTube. Please do check them out. It's still day one for us. We've got a lot of features to build and delight you all. So thank you for coming over. Thanks.